LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Dr. Michael Wood who joins us to discuss his recent study entitled What About Building 7? A Social Psychological Study of Online Discussion of 9-11 Conspiracy Theories, which was co-authored by Dr. Karen Douglas of the University of Kent. Their research suggests that people who argue in favour of conspiracy theories do so differently from those who argue against them, and that there are distinct psychological differences between those who support conspiracy theories and those who support the official story. Belief systems also have a profound effect on the acceptance or rejection of conspiracy theories. In their analysis, conspiracy theories are more about disbelieving the official story than believing in some alternative account. For those who think 9-11 was an inside job, for example, the focus is not on promoting a specific rival theory, but in trying to debunk the official account. Those promoting 9-11 conspiracy theories are also more likely to promote unrelated conspiracy theories, such as those about the deaths of John F. Kennedy and Princess Diana. The study also found that those who favour official accounts are generally more hostile than the pro-conspiracy camp, and perhaps unsurprisingly, that conspiracy theorists do not like being called conspiracy theorists. Hello and welcome, Mike, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks, Greg. Good to be here. Now, Mike, today we're going to talk about a recent paper that you co-authored with a colleague, Karen Douglas, and the title is What About Building 7? A Social Psychological Study of Online Discussion of 9-11 Conspiracy Theories. Before we get into that, perhaps you could just tell us about you and Karen's uh, roles at the university, your, what your interest in this area is, and then how you came to actually do this particular study. Right. Well, I... Um Came to, you can probably tell from my accent that I'm not a, a Kentish native. I, I am actually from Canada, and I, I came over to the UK to study the psychology of conspiracy theories. Um, Karen has been my, my PhD supervisor. I've since finished my, my uh, doctorate degree, and I'm now casting about for jobs. So, um, you know, we worked together on, on a lot of these projects. This, this particular project was, was part of my thesis. And so that's that's the sort of relationship that we've had. We've we've published a couple of papers together, and um, it's all it's all gone pretty well. I've always been interested in in sort of alternative topics. When I was younger, it was uh, aliens. I, I used to be um, terrified of being abducted by aliens. It was um, you know when I was thirteen, I would I would stay up late watching the X Files and kind of uh, you know shivering under the covers sort of thing. And then you know I, I got into a bit of like paranormal occult stuff. Uh, and I thought that was all very interesting. And, and then I, I became a lot more uh, sort of skeptical later in, in, in my life about all um, most sort of alternative um, paranormal um, fringe topics. And then I, I started to, to wonder about the psychology of it, like what there was uh, within 
myself that had changed to, to make me go from from more of a, a believer in some of these things to, to, to be more skeptical about it. And also, uh, I was interested in what would sort of explain the difference between some of the people that I'd met on, on both sides of that divide. So um, I had met a lot of people when I was doing the sort of alternative stuff. And I, I met a lot of people when I was doing the skeptic stuff. And they, they were very similar in some ways and, and very different in other ways. And I was interested in, in why that happened. And so that's what, what drove me to, to check out this whole psychology of conspiracy theories business. Um, that and the fact that I just find, still find conspiracy theories to be really interesting, even if I don't necessarily, necessarily believe them. I think that they're, they're just a really fun topic. And uh, so that's why I ended up studying them. Okay, well, I think we all know pretty much we can say, yes, we know what conspiracy theories are. Um, obviously, 9-11 has been mentioned in the title of your paper. But just to, I'll just perhaps quote the definition in the paper, just so we're all on the same page. Conspiracy theory being defined as allegations that powerful people or organizations are plotting together in secret to achieve sinister ends through deception of the public. And what you've basically done with your study is you've looked at thousands of comments on news websites of various types and you've looked at the what you call conspiracist point of view the comments so that's pro-conspiracy theory and also then the conventionalist which is the anti-conspiracy theory and you've basically done a big compare and contrast operation yeah more or less um this the idea for this study kind of came to me when i was looking at um people arguing about conspiracy theories on the internet um, which I, I do a lot more than than I probably should. But, you know, in, in this case, it turned out to, to give me a productive idea for, for a study. There's all this raw material out there about how people, you know, people arguing with each other and debating these things and try to convince one another. And I thought that, you know, this is this is such a, a huge amount of raw material that's out there. Surely there's some way that we could um, get an insight into how people think by looking at the way that they express their opinions and the way that they try to convince other people to join their own points of view. And so we, uh, Karen and I, we looked at these comments on these news websites, like mainstream news websites. Um, the four that we looked at were CNN, the Daily Mail, ABC News, the, the American ABC News, not the Australian one, and the Independent. So two American websites, two British websites. And we decided to look at these and see if we could find differences in the way that people um, put forward some of their ideas and in ways that would make sense in the context of the other research on conspiracy theory belief or, or disbelief that's out there. Now, there's lots of interesting findings in the paper, uh, one of which is that the pro-conspiracy camp tend to be more about opposing the official narrative than actually putting forward one of their own, uh, whereas the anti-conspiracy camp are more about supporting the official thesis, which they see as theirs. They're more about that than addressing perhaps anomalies in official stories or addressing the details of the uh, that the conspiratorial camp are putting forward. The the first part of what you said is certainly right. That that people who are advocating the conspiracy theories are mostly talking about anomalies in whatever the official account is. They spend a lot less time proposing alternative theories. So people are more likely to say jet fuel can't melt steel. That's weird. That's a problem for the official story. Than they are to say, well, it was thermite and they used thermite. These are both things that people say a lot in the 9-11 truth movement, but in the course of people arguing with each other in these sort of news website comment sections or, or other venues where you have this sort of mixed audience where people, it, it's not just an echo chamber, you have people who are both pro-conspiracy and anti-conspiracy. Um, then you, you, you start to see this pattern emerge where the, the people who are um, trying to promote the conspiracy theory will raise anomalies without, raise, without really advocating for whatever their own explanation is. 
Um, they're more likely to say, um, this thing is a problem for the official story rather than this thing supports this particular alternative theory or this particular conspiracy theory. The people who are advocating the official story um, usually do address those anomalies or they attempt to address those anomalies anyway. This is what they do. They, they are less likely to criticize whatever the conspiracy theory is, and they're more likely to try to bolster the official explanation or whatever variation on the official explanation that they're going for. So they might say, uh, well, the jet fuel doesn't have to melt the steel. It just has to weaken it so that it can't support as much weight. They're more likely to say that than they are to say, well, it's totally implausible that they could have used thermite because there's the there would have been explosion noises and there weren't any explosion noises or something like that. Um, so that's the sort of pattern that we see. So we do see the it, it's, it's a very consistent difference. And this is something that's consistent with some previous research on the psychology of conspiracy theories and the differences between people who tend to believe in, in conspiracy theories and people who tend to disbelieve conspiracy theories. The people who believe conspiracy theories, we, we, we had this in a previous study, we showed that, that people who believe in a couple of conspiracy theories tend to believe in a lot of them. So if you ask somebody about 9-11 and they say it's an inside job, then you pretty much can have a good idea of what they're going to say about things like uh, the JFK assassination, um, the death of Princess Diana, the moon landing, um, autism and vaccines, and uh, any number of other sort of conspiratorial topics. Um, and then you can say the same for people who don't believe that 9-11 was an inside job. They're also much less likely to believe that Diana was assassinated or that there's a conspiracy to cover up harm from vaccines or anything like that. And what we found in this other study, this previous study that we did, was that if you ask people about um, two po different possible conspiracy theories about the death of Princess Diana, like if you say she was killed by MI6 and she was killed by business rivals of Mohammed al-Fayed. Those are two contradictory theories, right? They can't both be true. She couldn't have been killed by both MI6 and by Mohammed al-Fayed's business enemies and faked her own death and a couple of other things that we looked at. Those still tend to be positively correlated. So the more somebody believes that Diana killed, uh, faked her own death, the more they believe that she was killed by MI6. And the more they believe that she was killed by MI6, the more they believe that she was killed by Mohammed al-Fayed. And that's weird because we shouldn't see these positive correlations, right? That they, they contradict one another. So the more the more you believe one, the less you should believe the other. In fact, what we see is that um, this is sort of a general idea of there's something weird here. There's something that's being covered up. There's something going on that we don't really know about. This uh, relationship between these contradictory theories is explained by um, a, a mistrust of whatever the official story is or a belief that something uh, something else is going on, something below the surface. And so that's something that we took away from that result was that beliefs in conspiracy theories aren't really about believing in one particular theory. Um, people who uh, think that 9-11 was an inside job, for instance, don't usually lay out a particular idea of exactly what happened. It's more of a generalized disbelief in the official story. And what we found in this new study was that that's reflected in how they argue about it. Rather than promoting a particular theory, they actually go against the official story and try to disprove that. And that's generally how it fell out. Now, this, um, you know, conventionalists will come with, as they see it, a complete account, quite often, you know, provided in the official narrative that, that covers more or less all bases in any given, you know, event or chain of events. Whereas, as you pointed out, that the conspiratorial um, camp, they like to draw their attention to anomalies. And sometimes the conventionalist people will then say that the 
because the conspiratorial camp don't have a complete narrative of their own, that that means anything that they're saying, what they're putting forward is basically invalid. But isn't it a bit like detective work? Detective turns up on the, the scene of a murder, looks around, uses his uh, intuition, his intelligence, what he previously knows to start to put a story together. Because he can't explain exactly everything that's taken place within 10 minutes of arriving on the scene, it doesn't mean that he shouldn't continue investigating or he, or he should get taken off the investigation. It's, it's okay to have a story uh, that isn't yet complete. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not making any, any moral judgments here about what's going to be a, a better way of arguing or a more honest way of arguing. Um, like, I, I'm just studying the psychology of it. I'm not trying to pass judgment on on anybody. It's, um, but this is this is tends to be how people argue, and I, I just think it's interesting that there's this different approach. Um, on the one hand, you have the conventionalist view, which is sort of you, you brought up the idea of a detective looking at stuff. There, there's kind of the, the, these different approaches where on the one hand you say, well, the, the, the majority of the evidence points toward this particular theory, and maybe there are, there are some things that don't make sense about it, but those aren't a big deal, and maybe we can figure them out later. And then there's this other view that is like, well, we don't really know what's going on. Um, there are some anomalies here, and so obviously we can't conclude that this is what happened. So uh, it, it's almost like the difference between a, um, a, a criminal case and a, a civil case. A, a criminal case you have to prove beyond reasonable doubt. And a, a civil case, you just have to show that the preponderance of the evidence goes one way or another. So maybe this is sort of how people structure their, their cognitions about these kinds of issues. On the one hand, uh, you have people who, who, who have a certain bar that, that evidence has to meet in order to accept an explanation. And then on the other hand, you have people who, who sort of do the opposite. Now, another one of your findings, which should be pretty evident to anybody who spent any time looking at um, comment sections and forums and what have you, is that the pro-conspiracy people tend to be somewhat more positive or at least less negative than the anti-conspiratorial people in terms of uh, personal and off-topic comments and also flat-out attacks that avoid discussion. And in fact, there's quite often a a very hostile tone in conventionalist arguments. There, There is a caveat with this finding. We only looked, this only applies to comments that had some persuasive content. So we, we strictly looked at comments that made some kind of an argument one way or another about um, 9-11 was an inside job or 9-11 was not an inside job, basically. So any comment that didn't say anything about that was excluded from analysis. So we didn't get the comments that were insulting, like purely insulting. If somebody just said, um, you're all crazy, you tinfoil hat, nut jobs, why don't you go home? Or if they just said, you're all a bunch of sheep, why don't you go and get into the, the government death camps or whatever? Those wouldn't really be considered persuasive arguments because they're not really making any point about 9-11. They're just kind of smack talking each other, right? Um, or if the, someone would say something like, wow, there's an awful lot of conspiracy theory nut jobs here. Or uh, something like, wow, so many government shills in this comment section right now. Those wouldn't be counted either. So we, we looked at strictly a subset of comments, the persuasive ones. Um, but yeah, within those persuasive comments, when people were, were actually making an argument of some kind, the conventionalist comments did tend to be a bit more hostile than the conspiracist comments did. Um, it wasn't a huge difference. And on the whole, discussion was pretty civil. I, on a, we had a hostility on a scale of one to five. And I think for um, conspiracist comments, it was something like 1.5 was the average, and it was about two um, for conventionalist comments. Um, so yeah, on average, a little more hostile. I think, well, the, the, the rationale for this that we came up with in the paper is that 
conspiracy theories tend to be a minority opinion. And there's a lot of psychological literature looking at what minor, uh, someone who holds a minority viewpoint will do in order to try to, to influence the majority, who, who's perhaps unsympathetic or, or uncaring to whatever their viewpoint might be. And also what a majority will do when they find themselves um, trying to be persuaded of something by a minority, or if, if, if someone who holds a minority opinion is trying to persuade others, what will they do in response? And one of the things that um, people will tend to do when they're in the majority and, and they're in this sort of situation is they'll, they'll try to sort of get people to, to conform to whatever the norm is, you know, whatever the sort of standard behavior, morally sanctioned behavior is. And one way to do that is, is by being a little bit hostile and almost trying to bully people into, into adopting or, or uh, adopting the majority view or, or shutting them up or, or whatever. So there was certainly some of that evident. There was some of that evident on both sides, but yeah, on average, the, con the conventionalist people tended to be a little bit more hostile, which is in line with what we know about um, social psychology in general and how people respond to attempts at persuasion and social influence. Um, throughout your study of this over the years, what, have you gleaned anything about particular trends with regard to people's thinking how it might be changing around these areas? For example, if you're listening to the mainstream media and they happen to address a conspiracy theory they tend to play down the significance of the people looking at it or the numbers of people who subscribe to this, whether they're rationally arguing for it or whether they just really do seem to be quite unhinged <laughs> in their view of the world. But of course, that when you then go out into the, the big world of the relatively free and uncensored internet, this seems to be much more prevalent for obvious reasons, because there's less control, aren't there sort of gatekeepers there? So what's your feeling for actually what's happening within societies as a whole with regard to people's b beliefs around these areas, how they're changing, evolving, you know, because it, 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 on the surface, it appears to be it growing numbers of people subscribe to one or more conspiracy theories. Yeah, well, there's a couple of factors at play here. One thing that was, I, I talked about this in the paper, um, some people have, have proposed that conspiracy theories are getting more and more vague over time. So we observed this trend in the data where people who were proposing conspiracy theories or arguing against the official version of 9-11 tended to, to not really advocate a particular theory. They were more looking for anomalies in whatever the official story was. And a, a guy called uh, Clark, a researcher um, who published this, uh, this article in, in this journal of social epistemology, basically proposed that this is because of the internet and that it wasn't always like this. If you look at, back at some of the uh, you know, texts about the JFK assassination that were written in you know, the early 70s or the, some of the early Watergate investigations, because um, I, I do think Watergate counts as a, a conspiracy theory. You see people being a, quite a bit more specific. They're, they're more likely to name um, methods and perpetrators and things like that. And there's not as much, well, I don't know, we need a new investigation and a little bit. It can, can be a little bit waffly. And this guy proposes essentially that this is because on the, on the Internet, it's so easy to, to come up with these criticisms. And you have people who like conventionalists who will go and look at these sort of conspiracy theory um, discussions on, on forums or blogs or whatever and come up with arguments against them. And he proposes essentially that in order to insulate some of these theories from criticism, there's been this natural evolution toward not being as definite about what exactly a particular theory entails. So it, it ends up being kind of an asymmetrical relationship, which is what we saw in these comment sections where most of the discussion is focused on whatever the official story happens to be. Um, and it's not really on the merits of an alternative theory. The discussion is always centered around whether the official story is um, adequate. And that's true whether you're talking about 
um, conspiracists who argue against the official story or conventionalists who argue for the official story. Um, there are exceptions, but um, that was generally how the trend went. There have been some studies that showed that, for instance, the uh, like the JFK conspiracy theories rose in popularity from the 60s to the 90s. And part of that is probably because of JFK, the, the Oliver Stone film. But also, um, people have talked about how, how other factors in society might be um, contributing to the, the rise and fall of conspiracy theories. And one of them is um, trust. So a big determinant of whether you believe uh, conspiracy theories or not is what, how much you trust other people, not just the government and the media, but your, your friends, your neighbors, your family. Um, someone who's less trustful in general is more likely to believe conspiracy theories, which seems obvious. And there's been a, a general decline in, in social trust in the past few decades, and that might be um, part of what causes conspiracy theories to become more common. We also see, I think, probably more conspiracy, actual conspiracies exposed these days. You know, we just had this this whole business with Edward Snowden and the NSA, and then we had WikiLeaks before that and Bradley Manning and, and all that business. And that probably makes people quite mistrustful of government and, and likely to believe that, that conspiracies are, are more probable because uh, we, we see these conspiracies happening. And I think that's that's something that we didn't really have back in the 50s and the 60s nearly as much. Now, the term conspiracy theorist itself, there seem to be various versions of where this has come from. Uh, one as a CIA invention, basically um, designed to discredit people holding some of these alternative views. Um, another is that it was originally quite neutral, but became derogatory later just by its usage. Well, the, the term is, is older than the CIA. I think it, it goes back to the, the late 19th century. But before that, there were other, there were other theories. Like the, the history of conspiracy theory is quite interesting. Um, a lot of people link it up to the early Renaissance and medieval witch panics in Europe. And the, the structure is, is similar in some ways. There's this group of secretive people who are um, plotting to control us and, and do bad things against us. Um, but there was much more of a religious element because, you know, the devil was, was cavorting with these witches and all that. Where I think they really got their start was with the Masons. Um, around the time of the French Revolution, there were quite a few people who were suspecting that the French Revolution and um, likewise other revolutions were, were orchestrated by, by the Masons who had this, you know, damn fool idea that, that monarchies shouldn't rule Europe and instead there should be republics. And um, of course, it was all plot, part of a larger plot to destroy Christianity, which again brings in the religious element. Um, I don't believe they were called conspiracy theories until quite a bit later, but it's it's a sort of class of explanation that's certainly been around for for quite some time. The derogatory status of the term is definitely something that, you know, there, there, there's really no disputing that. We found that in the study as well, that, that conventionalists were, were very likely to use the term conspiracy theory um, or conspiracy theorist or some some variant of it. And then the conspiracists um, were, were not as likely to apply it to themselves. They often would apply it to the official story of 9-11. They would say the official conspiracy theory, or they would say something like, uh, you know, you can call it a conspiracy theory, but it's still true. Or they would say something like, you know, conspiracy theory is such a loaded term, let's not use it. So uh, people, are, I think, are very conscious of, of it being kind of a loaded term, um, which makes me feel a little bit weirded out that I'm still using it. The problem is that there's not really a good alternative definition. You know, I've talked to people about this, and there's not really a, a good alternative that I've found that, that kind of captures 
the, the same sort of meaning. You know, people say um, you should just use the word dissenter. And it's like, OK, well, you know, there are dissenters who, who there, there's dissent without conspiracy theorizing and there's conspiracy theorizing without dissent. So that doesn't make sense. And there, then there are people who talk about deep geopolitics and say, well, you should call it deep geopolitics instead. Um, Ian R. Crane uses that term. But I don't think that's that's very good either, because um, there's nothing about conspiracy theories as a class of explanation that makes them necessarily more or less deep than conventional explanations, not by definition anyway. Um, you can have a conspiracy theory that's quite shallow and you can have an, a, a you know conventional explanation for something that's fairly deep. I don't know. I, I don't know of a good alternative. If you have any ideas, I'm all ears. Well, I was talking to somebody yesterday speaking about David Icke and saying, well, he's an alternative thinker, mm. not, not a conspiracy theorist. But even I mean, I think it's a problem with language, isn't it? Uh, even alternative thinker. I mean, that can become derogatory because, you, you know, oh, yeah, alternative thinker. Eh? We all know what that means. So yeah. it's, you can't settle on anything. You can't control what a term will evolve into. Yeah. I, I, it, alternative thinker is also quite a broad term. And that can encompass a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with conspiracy at all. Right. It, an alternative thinker could just be somebody who who does a lot of meditation and thinks that, um, you, you know, ha, has sort of new age beliefs and does channeling and things like that. That's that's pretty alternative thought, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with conspiracy. I part of the reason why we use these labels in the study conspiracist and conventionalist is because we couldn't come up with a good term for people who who. Um, tend to believe these, you know, uh, conspiracy theories or people who are into 9-11 truth and related topics. So we just tried to come up with something that was kind of equally insulting to the people who didn't believe it. So I think most people who are who we would label as conventionalists in this study wouldn't really relish being called conventionalists because it's kind of, uh, you're, you're so conventional, you're such a conventionalist. That's kind of what we were trying to do. I'm not quite sure if we were successful with it. Uh, well, actually, I'm, uh, if it came down to it, I think I'd rather be put into the camp of conspiracy theorists to conventionalists. I don't really like the sound of that at all. <laughs> yeah, well, mission accomplished then. <laughs> but um, now all sorts of people get swept up in the conspiracy theory uh, blanket, as it were, the net. And there's undoubtedly a crank contingent in there, you, the aforementioned tinfoil hat black helicopter brigade. But it is a spectrum of people ranging from, in my experience, uh, you know, very serious uh, researchers and authors who just happen to be out of favor and just on the wrong side of a, you know, political or social or some other sort of fence at a given point in history, right through to people who are advocating, you know, all sorts of things that are palpably nonsense. And this does complicate life for a lot of people who are just outside of the mainstream, but they're getting caught up in this. And just as there's a danger that, conspiracy theory we can see we can see it everywhere we can also write off and i know you don't have any axe to grind on this as such but we can also write off people who just happen to be out of favor uh, at the moment yeah I, you know i think that there's something that predisposes people to be more or less receptive to conspiracy type explanations for events i i think that it's uh, there, there, there's a little bit of research on this, and a lot of people have speculated about it, but it's all a bit nebulous at this point. But basically, the idea is that we have to be a little bit suspicious of other people. We have to be a little bit vigilant about what's going on around us and, and the possibility that people might be plotting against us or manipulating things or, or trying to make things appear as they're not in order to, to gain somehow. And one thing that comes out of this is that there's some amount of natural human variation in, in how suspicious somebody is or how vigilant they are for that particular kind of manipulation. And some people are, are not 
vigilant at all and they just don't care and they, they believe whatever they're told. Um, there are other people who are way suspicious and just don't believe anything and don't trust anyone. And everyone, most people fall in the middle. I suspect it's, it's sort of a normal shaped distribution. And the existence of people on both ends of that kind of spectrum is indicative of the fact that this is something that's that, that we need a wide distribution of. We need people who are really suspicious and, and look for this sort of thing. And we need people who, to some degree, trust other people and are willing to work together and, you know, uh, be, be a little bit less suspicious. And obviously, both of these can be good or, or bad in different situations. You can have um, very counterproductive suspicion and you can have very counterproductive trust. So I think to some extent, this is something that, that is present in, in everybody to a greater or lesser degree. Now, when you bring mental illness into it or, or politics and, and, and people either have some sort of disordered thinking or they have some sort of allegiance to one group or another, and then that can throw a spanner into the works and then they can end up finding themselves in a camp that they wouldn't otherwise have found themselves. Like one good example is if you're a believer in if if you're French, for instance, and you're you're worried about Dominique Strauss-Kahn, who was the head of the IMF, and he got um, accused of of uh, rape or sexual harassment, some sort of sex crime, um, and there were there were there were these sort of conspiracy theories about him, and they tended to come from the the, the French left because um, he was a socialist, and so the French socialists thought, well, this guy's one of us, he couldn't have done it, it, it must be a conspiracy. And so you get these sort of group dynamics and things that also lead to, to people accepting or rejecting conspiratorial explanations. And so there's a lot of factors at play, but I think that, that there's definitely an amount of variation that's healthy to have. And I think that we need some amount of, of uh, conspiracism in order to, to work as a society. What do you think's behind the dynamic uh, whereby there is an official story, there are holes in it, and people who are pursuing this, trying to plug these gaps or find out if they are in fact evidence that the official story doesn't stand up, you then get the government, whoever it happens to be, officialdom, just refusing to discuss it, having people shut down who are trying to investigate. A phrase we quite often hear is, you know, well, if they had an explanation for this, why not just put it forward? I mean, 9-11 is the classic case. If you can explain these anomalies, then just do so and we'll, we'll all go home and forget all about it. So mm. I just wonder what you think's behind that, because it does seem to be, you know, uh, giving fuel to conspiracy theorists. There's a couple of perspectives on this um, that I've, I've seen in the research. Have you have you heard of um, Cass Sunstein? He he wrote he famously wrote this paper talking about what can what should we do about conspiracy theories? I think it was back in um, 2001, and he wrote another one in 2009 that was kind of similar. And he, he talked about this, these ideas for, you know, it, what should policymakers do when, when people have conspiracy theories about, about you, about what you're doing? You know, you're in government, and somebody accuses you of being in on something or orchestrating some false flag attack or something like that. And this was basically a list of sort of gaming out the different scenarios of what you can do in order to respond to it. And one idea was that um, you just uh, ignore them. And that seems to be what people do. And the idea behind that is that if you engage with people about these conspiracy theories, then that just kind of fuels it. And it's kind of the idea is that it's sort of giving giving these theories uh, credence or giving them sort of like the idea is that if you're addressing them, there, then there must be something to them. But if you ignore them, then it's not even worth talking about. So people will will ignore it. So I think that's the reasoning there. Um, he also gained out these other scenarios about how, you know, if you you could try to like get people to go and like 
argue with other people. The thing that he's most infamous for is this idea of cognitive infiltration, which was one of the, the proposed things that you could do, which would be to send people into online discussion forums and, and other places and basically get them to argue against whatever the conspiracy theories are, either either covertly or overtly. And so that was one of the, the possible proposals that he looked at. He got a lot of flack for that, unsurprisingly. That kind of implies that he and others like him really think there's a, a problem here, perhaps a growing problem. Well, there, like I said, there's been some research on uh, the connection between conspiracy theories and trust. And um, it's been found that people who believe conspiracy theories are less likely to trust other people. And it's not really clear which way the, the, the causality goes on that one. It could be that people who are dispositionally less trustful are also more likely to believe that others are conspiring against them. It's also likely that if you believe in a lot of conspiracy theories, you'll, you'll lose your trust in people. Uh, Karen and um, my other colleague, uh, Dan Jolly, have done together some research on, on what happens when you present somebody with a conspiracy theory. Um, and, and give them arguments for it and basically try to convince them of it. If you do a good enough job and they end up buying into it, then you see a lot of kind of ripple effects. Um, they're less likely to vote. Um, they're less likely to do sort of um, civic behaviors, things like protesting. They're less likely to, uh, if, the, if it's like a global warming or climate change type conspiracy, they're less likely to recycle or to try to cut their, their carbon emissions. And so there, there's some evidence that if you believe in conspiracy theories, you're sort of less likely to engage with society, which um, I could see people being interested in, in curbing, although I don't think there was much research on that at the time that Sunstein wrote those papers. So I think he was kind of doing it on spec. He kind of suspected that there might be something like that, but he wasn't entirely sure. Now, as you mentioned with the recent whistleblower cases, which are kind of all of them ongoing, conspiracies, actual conspiracies get exposed all the time. And that does seem to be an increasing phenomenon. Uh, again, perhaps a lot to do with the internet. Certainly, you know, WikiLeaks couldn't really have happened without the internet, simply with what uh, Bradley Manning and, and Snowden have done. Mm. Uh, but then we have this strange reaction. I mean, I've seen some conventionalist reaction to this, basically, unquestioningly going along with official position that these people are all criminals. Mm. But then they're exposing stuff that's breaking established laws or countering, in the U.S. case, the Constitution, but they're deemed as criminals and terrorists. And it doesn't seem to carry the same, perhaps the credibility that it should, that they, you then present people the idea that government might not always be operating in your best interest. That still mm. strikes conventionalists as, as just out there thinking. I, I, I do think that these cases have an impact on, on how much people take conspiracy theories seriously. Just to devise like a, a sort of thought experiment, like a psychological thought experiment, if you give somebody a thing to read and then have them fill out a questionnaire, that's kind of a standard psychological experiment to see how what they read influences what they say on the questionnaire. So if you have them read a story about, you know, Bradley Manning or, or Edward Snowden or, or uh, Julian Assange or, or any of that, if you have them read a story about that, then answer a, a questionnaire about some event that happens in you know, do you think it was a false flag set up by the government, you know, some fictional bombing or something like that? I'd be really surprised if relative to a control group, the people who read about the, the veridical, you know, the real conspiracy weren't more likely to believe that there was a conspiracy behind that. There's definitely an effect of these conspiracies. And I think that's, um, you know, if governments, if the governments of the world don't like having conspiracy theories about them, then it would be really good if they would stop conspiring to do stuff that's kind of bad and awful. I think that would be a great help in reducing conspiracy theories, much more than cognitive infiltration would. But uh, somehow I don't think they're going to go for that. 
Another point that seems to come out of your research is that, and certainly I've seen this looking at uh, this, these sort of materials online for a long time, is that conspiracists often, not always by any means, but often tend to research. There's a lot of people who are devoting themselves full time to you know, debunking mainline uh, con- conventional narratives. Mm. Um, whereas a lot of the conventionalists appear to, and again, not always, but they appear to repeat the official narrative, you know, a little bit like the mainstream media will regurgitate a press release, but they themselves have never actually satisfied themselves uh, intellectually that the official narrative is what it says it is. I don't know if that's, if that's something that necessarily comes up. Like I, I've, I've read like a lot of, I've read a lot of stuff from sort of skeptic movement type people, people like, yeah, you know, people who, who devote a lot of time to, to, refuting conspiracy theories or trying to debunk conspiracy theories. And they would probably say the same thing flipped around. They would probably say like, well, you know, us, us skeptics, capital S skeptics, we, we do all our research and, and all those conspiracy theorists out there, they, they, they just regurgitate what they saw in Loose Change and, and Zeitgeist and other YouTube documentaries and believe whatever David Icke says. I don't know if that's necessarily a real effect. I, it probably seems like that, but I don't know if this is like I, I mean, a lot of what comes out, what people have the, these theories about um, the other side, you know, b- people on the the anti-conspiracy side, the conventionalist side, um, or at least the ones who think about it a lot, have certain theories about how the 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 conspiracy, the conspiracist people think. Conspiracist people have theories about how conventionalist people think. And if something comes out, like if there's a, a result that comes out that's unfavorable to their own side, they say what? that's bullshit. No way. And, um, I saw that a lot with sort of skeptic people in response to this, um, this study where, where that showed that the, uh, conventionalists in these arguments tended to be a bit more hostile. They were really surprised by that and weren't really sure what to say about it. On the other hand, um, the previous study that I did where, where that Karen and I did, where we looked at the contradictory conspiracy theories, we had a lot of people from the conspiracist side saying, what? No way. That's, that's crap. And all the skeptics would look at that and say, yeah, of course, obviously. So I think that a lot of this, these preconceptions that people have about the way that, you know, the other side works, I think a lot of that is just group bias. It's kind of an us versus them thing. And I'm not sure if there's really anything there. Um, it's entirely possible. And you can use a lot of these, these ideas to, to do research on them. But ultimately, it's, it's really not easy to say without um, having some hard data to back it up. Now, as you've already mentioned, our ideologies and belief systems um, come into play massively here, whether it's political ideology or uh, some kind of racial bias, religious belief systems. And you only have to look at, uh, for example, how readily accepted some of the 9-11 conspiracy theories were in sections of the Muslim world oh, uh, yeah. in, in the Middle East. And when something, I mean, there's, that's an effect in itself in different, uh, but there's also the idea that, um, that people experiencing cognitive dissonance when something it may be completely true or completely untrue or somewhere in between but whatever the case is if it conflicts with deeply held ideology or belief it then gets dismissed and it may actually be a mistake to dismiss it well people will try to reduce the dissonance between different ideas or attitudes that they have that conflict with one another and there are a lot of ways they can do that dismissing it is one way but you can also reduce the dissonance between um, two beliefs that you have by rational argumentation, by by looking at them in, in a, a, a perfectly 
fine way. I mean, dissonance just pushes you to, to reduce it. It's an unpleasant psychological state that results from having these conflicting um, ideas or beliefs. You know, you're, if, if I'm a conventionalist and I, I look at some uh, 9-11 truth movement documentary and it's a, it brings up some arguments that I hadn't seen and that are kind of convincing, then I'll be in a dissonant state and it'll be um, unpleasant. So I'll be driven to reduce the dissonance. And I can do that. Yeah, I can do that by ignoring it or I can do it by um, trying to come up with a potential explanation for, for this that, that fits with the official story, or I could go and look at the um, the, the, the people who made the, the video and decide that they're not really qualified, so I don't have to really listen to it, or I could uh, become part of the 9-11 truth movement, I could conclude that 9-11 actually was an inside job. Any of these would reduce dissonance. It doesn't necessarily just push people to maintain whatever their worldview is. Dissonance can also be a force for change, and in fact, within the, the paradigm of social psychology that's reflected with cognitive dissonance theory is one of the only paths to, to attitude change, is having strong enough dissonance that you can't really ignore it and you have to end up changing your attitudes. Now, we've seen, we talked earlier about the conspiracist worldview. You know, if you're, they believe that Princess Diana was executed, you're more likely to believe that the moon landing was staged. But the fact that we are often lied to by government, and we mentioned a few moments ago about real conspiracy being exposed it is just that. It's kind of a fact. For example, we've got the weapons of mass destruction thing in Iraq established as a, a false case now. And then we hear similar rhetoric about Syria at the moment. And a, a lot more people are being skeptical about that and just sort of smelling a rat. And what can be done really to um, address this or to, to attempt to halt or even reverse this trend? Because I see it as, as very insidious, this lack of trust, wherever it's coming from, for you know, our collective future being able to get things done. And it creates all sorts of us and thems, not just conspiracy people and, and uh, conventionalists, but lack of trust between government and, and the governed. And I, I think it's a potentially a tremendous ongoing problem. Well, it sounds like you're talking about basically reforming the system in a way that it's more accountable, more transparent. Um, that's that's a pretty big question. I mean, you'd have to ask a political scientist. I, I just study psychology. That's above my pay grade. Well, there's a psychology of, you know, the, the, what, what, is, what is the psychology of government, I wonder, you know, in a collective situation? I've often thought about that because that's another group that can get into an us and them. I see that increasingly between um, governments and populations. The two, there are two um, psychological variables or psychological bodies of literature that I think are pretty relevant for the intersection between politics and conspiracy. On the one hand, you have something called um, authoritarianism or or sometimes what's called right-wing authoritarianism, which is a particular kind of political ideology that, that is made up of a, a few different things. And it's characterized by a lot of very moralistic thinking, um, the idea that, that society is kind of, that people are inherently degenerate and need to be managed in a particular way, that um, foreignness is, is kind of evil and insidious and has to be kept at bay. And it's this sort of um, good and evil, black and white sort of worldview. Um, and I think that that can lead to both, uh, or, you know, the, the idea that we have a strong, we need to have a strong leader, strong leadership is in there somewhere too. And that can lend itself to both for and against conspiracy theories in different situations. So if you have, for instance, one of the classical conspiracy theories that the Jews are, are running everything and the Jews are trying to take over the world, sort of, you know, 1920s, 30s, 40s sort of conspiracy theories before that fell out of fashion for, for obvious reasons, that 
can lend itself, uh, right-wing authoritarianism lends itself extremely well to that sort of conspiracy theory because there's this threatening outgroup, there's this foreign influence corrupting our, our pure and innocent society and it has to be rooted out. On the other hand, it can also work against conspiracy theories. So if we're talking about more modern conspiracy theories like the 9-11 truth movement, um, that's very different in a lot of ways. It's a lot more anti-authoritarian because you have this, this abiding mistrust of official explanations. And instead of some minority group that's relatively uh, powerless or, or objectively relatively powerless um, relative to you know, large governments trying to take over the world, it's the, the people who are already more or less in control of the world who are, who are plotting against us. So that's more of an anti-authoritarian conspiracy theory. Um, so you can have you can have it on both sides. And there's also another um, dimension of, of political psychology called social dominance orientation. And that's basically a sort of intense competitiveness or the idea that we have to um, beat others down in order to build ourselves up kind of thing. And that plays into it a lot as well. I mean, this is a, a really sort of emerging psychological literature. But these two uh, social dominance orientation and right wing authoritarianism can determine a lot of what um, somebody thinks about political ideology. And I think that a lot of that plays into um, conspiracy theories and whether somebody's going to believe them and which ones they'll believe and what they're willing to do about it. I don't know. I mean, it's a fairly young field of research. Um, there's not a whole lot out there on authoritarianism and conspiracy theories. There's been a few conflicting findings, which I think are explained by the, the different kinds of theories. But on the whole, I, I think uh, give it a couple of years and we'll probably know more. What's your personal, actually just to ask you a personal question, mm. uh, for once, what's your uh, take on, for example, the official story of 9-11? Obviously, it's a massive detailed area, but... Have you seen anything that you had any misgivings about? Any unanswered questions? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's always stuff that comes up. Every so often I would, like, I, I don't really look at this stuff too much anymore because the 9-11 truth movement debate has been going on for over 10 years now. It's been going on for like 12 years at this point. I think most of what needs to be said probably has been said. I used to be more into it than I was now, and I do a lot of research. I spend a lot of time looking around and looking at arguments and, and counter arguments and things. And there was definitely some stuff that raised some eyebrows. There were some counter arguments to that that I thought were pretty good, too. I mean, I, I mostly wanted to talk about my research today. I didn't want to get too personal, but I haven't found the, the evidence for, 9 uh, for a 9-11 inside job to be particularly convincing. It is important, though, to acknowledge that, you know, there may be a bias one way or the other in some of this research, right? Um, most of the people, I think, who are studying the psychology of conspiracy theories have this approach of wow, all these weird people believe all this weird stuff. What's with that? Um, that's That's been a problem for social psychology in, in the past, where it's been this sort of the, the, the social psychology of, of exceptions or, or exceptional beliefs or exceptional circumstances. And, and we look at these things that, that people consider to be sort of boundary cases of, of society or boundary cases of psychology, things that, that strike us as a little weird or counter-normative. And, and what can this, can this tell us anything interesting about the way that people think? There's definitely, in, in such an ideologically charged sort of environment, there, there's a possibility that bias can come into play. And we try to counteract that as much as we can. But, at, you know, at some point, you have to acknowledge that you have a position one way or another, and this might color your research. Some fields, subfields of psychology are better about doing this than others. But I'm, I'm generally pretty skeptical about um, conspiracy theories. And I, I think 9-11 isn't really an exception. I did try to be, you know, as even-handed as possible in my research. And I think that um, the conventionalists came off about as badly as the conspiracists did. So that, that tells me I probably did okay. <laughs> well, for my part, for the longest time, I used to say I don't believe anything. I either know it or I don't know it. 
But mm. then I had to modify that slightly because I realized that I, I knew almost nothing and I wasn't particularly happy with that. So what I now say is with regards to everything, but particularly these sorts of subjects, is that I currently have a perception of how I think things are. That may change. So I don't know from uh, your from a psychologist's point of view, uh, what, that, what that makes me, but I found it to be, to be so far, again, the most satisfactory position that I can take. It's kind of a Socratic sort of position, I suppose. I, I find that a, a lot of people will say what you originally said, you know, I don't believe anything. Don't use the word believe. Believe itself is kind of a charged word because it, it implies that there's that this is something that's not amenable to, to evidence or, or anything like that. But people get into a lot of semantic arguments about this. And it, it, it just ends up being a whole mess. You know, like if I if I text my girlfriend, I, I believe that the person who answers is her and it's not some maniac who's stolen her phone. Right. You have to make some level of, of decision about reality and about what what reality is before you can interact with it in any way whatsoever. So I, I, I think this is a whole can of worms that's probably best left unopened. No, no, you're right. It's for a philosophical debate, perhaps. I mean, what we said earlier on about alternative thinker language is the way that we express ourselves primarily but it's also incredibly limited when you actually boil it down but um have you noticed that your paper has been widely spread on the internet and cited all over the place i mean that's how i discovered it mm -hmm. particularly under headlines along the lines of quote-unquote conspiracy theorists saying you know mainline thinkers crazy yeah um this this was a, a massive interpretation of the study the study doesn't say anything about mental health or, or anything like that. This is um, some interpretation by uh, this guy called Kevin Barrett, um, who's a PhD Arabist Islamologist who works for the um, for for he, he wrote this piece for Press TV, which is an arm of the um, Iranian state media. He basically he he took the uh, proportion of comments that we had. He's like we had um, in the sample. We had about um, fourteen hundred conspiracist comments and 700 conventionalist comments or something like that. And he said, well, look, there are about twi twice as many people talking about conspiracy theories as talking about um, as advocating whatever the official story is. Therefore, the conventionalists are an insane minority and they do all this stuff and they're they're crazy. And this isn't what at all what the paper said. It's, it's a total misinterpretation. And it like the mind boggles as to how popular this article was. And it's because it's exactly what people wanted to hear. I think this guy knows his audience very well. Um, and this study just got uncritically repeated so far. People, like, I don't think anybody who, who would spread this around would have read the original paper. Because the, if you read the paper and you read his article, they're so different. And they say such completely far removed things from one another. It's so strange because people were, were passing this around. Like, I, I looked at some of this. I looked at some of these comment sections on these sites and on, on, on aggregator sites like Reddit and, and other sites. And people were saying, yeah, well, obviously, we're, we're such good critical thinkers and they're just clinging to whatever people say. And it's like, well, if you're such a good critical thinker, why don't you read the study and, and not take Iranian state controlled media's word for it? Because people talk about, you know, oh, we don't, I don't trust the mainstream media. I don't trust, you know, the, the CNN or BBC or Western state-controlled media. And then they go and they get this article from Iranian state-controlled media, which has just as much of a vested interest, I think, in saying that 9-11 was an inside job as Western governments do saying 9-11 was not an inside job. Latch onto it and, and spread it around without giving a thought to the original study. And I think that that plays hugely into this idea of, of group dynamics and 
a lot of conspiracy theory belief or disbelief being kind of an us and them sort of deal, where if you say something good about our team, then it's fine. doesn't matter where it comes from. I, I, it's so important to think critically about stuff like this, not just about conspiracy theories or, or anything like that, but about everything. And it's so easy to think critically about something that you already disagree with and something that you read and think, well, that's obviously crap. There's no way that's true. If you can, if you think critically about that, then yeah, great job, gold star. But if you can think critically about something that appeals to you intuitively and that you look at and say, yeah, that resonates with whatever my personal experience is, that seems right to me. And if you can look at that and still walk away saying, I really need to check that out. I got to make sure that's right. I think that's the real key. And I think that's what a lot of people haven't done, which made me kind of sad. I was, I was expecting better. Well, perhaps, Mike, in closing, we could say that the paper, once again, just to remind listeners, it's called What About Building 7? A Social Psychological Study of Online Discussion of 9-11 Conspiracy Theories. That is available for free downloads. Perhaps you just tell folks maybe the best place to get that. Yeah, well, uh, you can check out the, uh, the journal website. It was published in the journal Frontiers in Psychology. You can just search for um, Frontiers in Psychology, Michael Wood, or Frontiers in Psychology, Karen Douglas, or even Frontiers in Psychology, uh, Building 7. Um, I've also got a link to it on my blog, which is at uh, conspiracypsychology.com. Excellent. Well, Mike Wood, thank you so much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com. Thanks a lot, Greg. Well, folks, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please check out the website. That's legalizefreedom.com, legalize-freedom.com, where you'll find an archive of programs offering alternative views on a wide range of topics, including world affairs, politics and economics, science and technology, religion and spirituality, conspiracy, and alternative history. You can also browse and buy a range of books and DVDs from our guests, and if you're feeling generous, make a donation to help keep the site up and running. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.